Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning, everybody. And um, thank you, Jason, for your very kind words. Margaret and I are really delighted to be here. We're having a lovely week and um, great to see all that's happening in these different events and lovely to meet uh, so many uh, believers committed to the cause of mission. It's fantastic. Greetings to you if you're watching online or if you're watching on the Vimeo stream. It's lovely to welcome you as well. We hope, although we're operating remotely, uh, you'll still be sensing the fellowship and the worship, but also the learning as we come to God's Word. We're in this little sequence under the heading, Trusting God in Turbulent Times, and uh, we now come to section four and this remarkable chapter three. We're saving the little doxology for tomorrow. It's a lovely section, as you know, the final verses, um, so if you can be with us tomorrow, uh, it does end um, so beautifully, this prophecy. But we've come to a very dramatic section as we uh, look at uh, a vision, a prayer, which Habakkuk uh, had received here. And you'll see I've given it the word watch, because this is what also he was called to do, to see something about God's greatness. Um, Margaret and I enjoyed being at Ballycrock and Baptist on Sunday, and I used a little illustration, which I wonder if I could repeat. Please forgive me if you've already heard this. But um, some years ago, uh, Margaret and I had the opportunity to try abseiling. Do you know what abseiling is? When you're sort of dropped off a cliff backwards. And um, you can see I'm not, I had polio when I was a kid, which, uh, which makes me a little bit wobbly on my feet. And so it's not really... Uh, habit of mine to engage in extreme sports, but um, I did have a go at abseiling, my one and only uh, try, and here I am to tell you the story, and uh, I decided it would be fine to go off the cliff, it was a Scottish coastal cliff, because at the top was a man who I knew very well, a good friend of mine, and when you abseil, you're going off backwards with a rope around you, and you certainly have to trust the rope. But of course, it's also important to trust the person at the top who is belaying the rope as you go down. And uh, as I say, he was a good friend of mine, uh, so I knew he wouldn't let me down, so to speak. And um, I landed safely, because the principle there is, as you have a friend and as you get to know a person well, then you begin to trust them more and more. That's normally what happens. And um, that is significant, I think, as we come to this chapter, because the big issue that we've been looking at in this prophecy, and especially focused here, is can we trust God? That was the issue for Habakkuk. He was bewildered, as we saw in chapter 1, by everything that was happening in 7th century BC Jerusalem, all of the drift away from God's law, all of the moral and spiritual decline. He was even confused, bewildered by the way in which God was acting as he used the Babylonian army. We've seen this. But he had come to trust God, to trust God's purpose. And that is the issue here. And of course, ultimately, we will be able to trust God if we know him. And the more we know him, the more we'll be able to trust him. 
Well, as we enter chapter 3, as I've said, there's an extraordinary vision of God's work and God's purpose. And I think as we read these dramatic verses, it helps us to see how great is our God, as we've been singing. And we long to know God better, don't we? Uh, this is something that Don Carson wrote in his, his lovely book uh, about the prayers in the New Testament. The one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. And as I say, I think as we come to know God better, we will be able to trust him more fully with our lives, our nation, our future, and uh, all that lies ahead. Well, just a few opening uh, points of introduction as you look at these opening verses. The first thing to see is that he sings. Um, you'll see from verse 1, the chapter is introduced as a prayer, but as you look at some of the verses, you see that there's probably there's, uh, here um, some uh, worship going on because there are various musical terms. Uh, in, in most of our Bibles, you may see the word sila, which appears uh, in a few places. Um, you'll notice right at the end of the chapter, at the end of verse 19, there's a little uh, footnote, which is a sort of musical instruction there. It's for the worship band, uh, for his director of music on the stringed instruments. Um, it begins actually in verse 1. Did you notice that there at the top, your Bible might have a little phrase, on shigionoth. And we're not entirely sure what that means, but it's probably another musical term. And uh, most people think it's an instruction about the tempo for this music. And um, as uh, Jason read these dramatic verses to us, um, the tempo is not a solemn chant. It's a really strong rhythm. That's probably what that little word means. So as we read it, you know, you can hear the trumpets blast. You can hear the, the drums. You can hear a driving bass. Yeah, there's some really, really big music accompanying this song. Um, now, the point about it is it's intriguing, isn't it? After all that we've looked at so far in this journey of Habakkuk, his response is to start singing and to encourage other people to do so. Um, one way in which God's people have sustained their faith during difficult times has been to sing, hasn't it? To sing about God's character, to sing about God's work. And the reason why we do that is singing captures our hearts and our emotions as well as our minds. Perhaps that's why the biggest book in the Bible is a songbook, the Psalms. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes uh, during my life when I've traveled sometimes to difficult places or I've been up against it a little bit or on my own, I sing hymns, usually under my breath, but uh, I, I will sing of some of the, uh, uh, the well-known words of the old hymns which remind us of God's greatness, God's character. Well, the whole chapter, in fact, represents this a, a kind of model prayer, prayer song uh, as, as we read it through, we're going to look at its details in just a moment. And I think it's worth remembering that the biblical prayers are meant to also serve as something of a model for our own praying. I always remember someone saying that the biblical prayers are like the clothes which parents buy for their children. They're, they usually buy, we usually buy clothes which are much bigger 
than our children need at the moment, hoping that the children will grow into them. In fact, when I went to high school, my parents bought me a blazer to wear, and it was at least a term or more before my friends realized I had hands at the end of my arms. And the biblical prayers are prayers that we should grow into. There are fantastic examples of how to trust God, how to rejoice in Him. Well, this is one such prayer with profound truth that we can grow into. And the great thing about it, as we're going to see, is it echoes with all kinds of uh, instances of God's action. The second thing linked to what I've been saying is, of course, he does pray. Um, verse 2, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Um, do you notice the change of tone in the way he's praying here from the way in which he prayed in chapter 1? In chapter 1, it was pretty turbulent, wasn't it? He was shouting almost, screaming, How long, Lord? Why is this happening? And, near, uh, and now, he's no longer arguing. He's recognizing that everything that God has said and everything that God has done is just. It is right. Uh, Calvin translates the verse, I heard your voice. In other words, over these past two chapters that we've been looking at, Habakkuk has heard God's word. He's come to understand what God is doing, his purposes. So he stands in awe. He's ready to accept God's will. Um, I, I see it as a kind of amen to everything that God has been saying to him over these past two chapters. And in these verses, I guess you saw it as we read, uh, as uh, as. Uh, Jason read it through, that there are many references to their past, and particularly to the Exodus story. Um, this, of course, was their finest hour. And so he appeals to the Lord to repeat that redemption, that kind of rescue. He appeals to the Lord, verse 2, you'll see here, repeat them in our day. Or as the uh, ESV uh, translates it, Lord, revive this do it again. He's praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, just as you saved us in the past. Now, Lord, save us again. And he's very clear what matters. He wants God's purposes to be fulfilled. He wants God's righteousness to be established. And again, I just ask a question about uh, our praying and what dominates our prayers um, what's significant, I think, about the biblical prayers and many of the Psalms is they reason from the top down. Have you heard this expression? Um, sometimes when we are praying, we are down at ground level and we're talking about this, this issue and that issue, this problem, what we'd like the Lord to do here. But very often, uh, the psalmists and the prophets, the biblical prayers, start with God. They start with his greatness, with his sovereignty, with his rule, and they reason from the top down. And that's the same here. Uh, Habakkuk longs that God's purposes will be revealed. He realizes now it is God's initiative, it's God's work here in the midst of all of the turmoil in which he still is standing. God is the one who needs to establish his rule in the hearts and minds of men and women. So our prayer a prayer for all God's faithful people is, is verse 2. Revive your work, O Lord. In our time, make them known.
And then in this little prayer, there's another phrase which is very moving. Did you notice it? It's there in verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. It's an understandable cry, I think, when you read that in his prayer because he just witnessed an extraordinary revelation of God's judgment. We saw it yesterday if you were with us. Uh, as Jason mentioned, these five woes of chapter 2 which were declaring God's action against all ungodliness. He'd heard those woes, uh, spoken not just to the Babylonians, but also to his own people, God's own people, the reality of his anger against sin. And so it's entirely understandable that he now appeals for God's mercy. We can identify with that, can't we? Um, we know what we deserve. We know what our world deserves. And so this is a lovely little prayer. In wrath, remember mercy. The essence of prayer, it's been said, is to appeal to God's character in his presence, to plead his character in his presence. Lord, be true to your character. Wrath Judgment is necessary, as we saw yesterday. If we're going to see a restoration of all things, evil must be punished. But mercy is part of God's character too. They belong together, don't they, these two things, wrath and mercy. And where do we see them most clearly? We see them in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where God acted in judgment, where his wrath was laid on his Son, and his mercy was shown to us since Jesus carried that burden. So in our praying, we know how important it is to appeal for God's mercy on the grounds of all that Jesus has done. And then the third thing is he watches. And that's where our little word watch uh, appears. Because verses 3 to 15 represent an extraordinary revelation of God's nature and God's work. It's, I think it's on a par with many of the great visions of Scripture. Um, in fact, he was sent reeling by this remarkable vision of the warrior God. We'll start tomorrow with verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept in my bones, my legs. He was shaking like a leaf. It was a profound vision that he had of God's greatness, the warrior God. And the interesting thing, as we read it, is, there is that there are many references here to God's action in the past. I've already implied that. Uh, like other prophets, Habakkuk looked at this present moment in the light of the past. Um, and in fact, he also looked at the present in the light of the future. It's something of a jumble as you read it through. Um, the Jewish mind didn't neatly categorize everything into past, present, and future. And we find in this vision a kind of kaleidoscope of references, sometimes looking back, sometimes looking forward. God rescued his people in the past, so God will come again to rescue them in the future. It's an incredible description of the Lord who is coming in judgment, but also in salvation. And if you remember, if you were here on Monday, the opening prayer of chapter 1, how long must I cry for help and you do not save? Well, here in this vision, Habakkuk realizes God did hear. God has been acting 
God will act and save. God is keeping his promises. God is true to his covenant. And the purpose of his coming is the salvation of his people. So there will be many references in these verses. I'll just highlight them as we zip through it. Uh, to the Exodus, to God's deliverance. He remembers all that God has done in the past. And this is a, another important maneuver for us when we're in turbulent times, the way we also must look back and remember. Uh, Martin Luther put it like this, nothing is so short as the believer's memory. And so time and again in Scripture, we're encouraged to remember. I mean, that certainly was true of God's people, wasn't it, in the Old Testament? They constantly rehearsed all of the things that God had done. Their prayers, <clears throat> their psalms, they looked back, well, the Lord has rescued us, he's delivered us. Keep on remembering what God has done. In fact, if you ask God's people in the Old Testament, how do you know that God loves you? Their reply would be, well, because of our story. I mean, look, he delivered us out of Egypt. He looked after us in the wilderness. He defeated our enemies. That's how we know he loves us. We remember what he has done. And for believers, Christian believers like us, the maneuver is exactly the same. When you're up against it, you feel perhaps even God may have abandoned you or you feel certainly you're going to hold on in these turbulent times. We do exactly the same thing. Look at how God has shown his mercy and love to us. Look at everything he's done for us in the Lord Jesus, in his death and resurrection. In fact, I tell you the one thing I've missed most of all during this pandemic, um, we've hardly been able to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I don't know how it's been here, but um, there have been very few opportunities to have communion, to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Um, I don't mean it just as a religious ritual, but the, the act of celebrating with God's people the bread and the wine, the Lord's death for us. Do this in remembrance of me. It's so important because there is nothing so short as the believer's memory. We need to keep on rehearsing these truths. Well, three things we're going to look at as we uh, quickly go through this remarkable song. First of all, the coming of the Lord, verses 3 to 5. And the vision begins, there in verse 3, by proclaiming that God is on the move. Our God is marching on, we could say, as we read these words. He is coming. And as he comes nearer and nearer, then his glory, uh, the impact of his presence, becomes more and more dramatic. Do you notice that in the language, in the poetry of this prayer song? Uh, verse 3, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Um, this is a reference to the area of Sinai, of course. And that's where God first revealed himself to Moses, do you remember, in the burning bush? And that, of course, was where God revealed himself to the people in that dramatic encounter at Sinai when his presence and power were revealed in his law. And verses 3 and 4, it describes the radiance of his presence as he comes. His glory covered the heavens and, the, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. As is again probably a little reference to the fire and the cloud at Mount Sinai, do you remember? 
Um, but they also reminded Habakkuk and the people of God's glory, of God's power. Whenever he comes, this is what will happen. His glory is an expression of his kingly authority. It is his sovereignty over all creation, over all history. His glory is a way of saying this is the powerful, the, the sovereign Lord, the Lord who reigns. And just as at Sinai in the Old Testament, his radiance was awe-inspiring. And Habakkuk sees it illuminating the whole world. It's a lovely expression in verses 3 and 4. But let me just put up how Eugene Peterson expresses it in his translation. Skies are blazing with his splendor, his praises sounding through the earth, his cloud brightness like dawn, exploding, spreading, forked lightning shooting from his hand. What power hidden in that fist. He's trying to capture the, the drama of the Lord's coming in those events in the past and in the future. And his coming in the Exodus, of course, was accompanied by extraordinary signs. You'll see there in verse 5, plague preceded him, pestilence followed in his steps. Uh, the Egyptians, of course, they were a very powerful nation, but they were terrified by that coming of the Lord. So Habakkuk is looking back, and as throughout this section, this song, there is also an anticipation of God's future coming, his future intervention. Lord, you did it then, do it again. Repeat it in our day. He longs that God would intervene one more time. In fact, his coming in this way is always a source of hope for God's people as we look for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, on Tuesday, when we were looking at uh, the righteous will live by faith, uh, I quoted this passage from Hebrews 10. As you remember, we looked at that because it's written to hard-pressed believers, and it's an expression of hope, and it quotes uh, from uh, Habakkuk. The last line is actually from Habakkuk 2. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere, for in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Spoken to the Hebrew believers in the first century, by God's Spirit spoken to us now, hold on, persevere, hold on to God's promises. He is coming. He will not delay. And of course, when he comes, it will have the same kind of dramatic manifestation which Habakkuk has just described in the poetry of his song. Do you remember how Matthew recorded it? Here it goes, Matthew 24. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible from the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Can you hear the echo of this Old Testament song in Habakkuk 3? Whenever God comes, it will be like this. And that's where our eyes are now fixed, on that horizon that Matthew records. That is where Habakkuk's vision is pointing us, to the coming of the Lord. And this coming will be a day of judgment, but also a day of deliverance for us, his people, a day of wrath and mercy, the two things, as I said, belonging together. And when he comes on that day, 
We know that history will be finally wrapped up. As we said from Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, everything will be finally summed up in Jesus on that day when he comes. So we are to look for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus. I remember reading something a while ago uh, about Lord Shaftesbury. Do you remember the great social reformer? And near the end of his life, he said something quite remarkable, but I put it up here. I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of the Lord's return. That's a way to live, isn't it? A great way to live in the light of Jesus coming. Jesus, the Lord, the King, the Judge, is coming. So there's the first big theme in this song. It's a description of the Lord's coming in the past, and Habakkuk is longing that the Lord would come again soon, as we do too. The second thing is the power of the Lord. And we see in verse 6 what I've already mentioned, and that is the cosmic implications of the Lord's coming, the Lord's arrival. Here it is. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. So just as there were convulsions at Sinai when God came to his people, so his power is demonstrated whenever he comes in judgment and salvation. The poetry describes these cosmic, universal implications. He's the creator, and at his coming, even the mountains crumble, as Habakkuk puts it. The rock-solid ancient hills quake. The eternal hills bow down as they encounter the creator, the eternal God. And of course, it's no wonder that the nations tremble as well. Do you notice that in verse 7? Uh, I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. And these were two places that bordered Egypt. So they would have witnessed all that God did when he delivered his people. It would shake them. No nation would be exempt from God's power and judgment. So when they witnessed the Lord's coming in, in the past, in the Exodus, they trembled. And the prophets often used these powerful images of the God who is the sovereign Lord of creation, the Lord of the nations, the one who comes with power. Now, the same happens in the New Testament. Um, actually, at Balakrokham Baptist, we looked at the prayer in Acts 4. Do you remember? They were, uh, Peter and John had been told not to preach in the name of Jesus. They'd been arrested. They'd been held back from their uh, ministry. And uh, eventually they joined the believers and they prayed together. And how did they begin their prayer? As a, as a minority under pressure? After all of the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, they prayed, Sovereign Lord, you created the heavens and the earth. Uh, they reasoned from the top down. Sovereign Lord, you created everything. Echoing Jeremiah's prayer, nothing is too hard for you. You're the sovereign Lord, the great creator. So Habakkuk is signaling here what those early Christians understood in their prayer meeting and which we are affirming at Bangor Worldwide this year. And that is the center of power today is not London, it's not Washington, it's not Moscow, it's not Beijing, it's certainly not there 
in Afghanistan, Kabul. The center of power today is the Lord God omnipotent. It is the Lord who is ruling and reigning. And the images used by Habakkuk here are also picked up in the New Testament, just as we saw it a moment ago. Um, do you remember when Peter was talking about where we're, where we're headed, what's going to happen in the future? 2 Peter uh, 2, it's a remarkable uh, chapter, 2 and 3, chapter 3, 2 Peter 3. And he uses the same kind of cataclysmic language to describe that day. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Verse 12, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So Peter is describing here the climax of history, and he makes it abundantly clear this is going to happen. The Lord is working out his plan and purpose. It is interesting when you listen to Christians around the world who are facing persecution or under pressure in one way or another. They take enormous comfort from the fact that despite all of the turmoil around them, God is the enduring, faithful God who will fulfill his promises, who will come. He is going to keep his word. And as Habakkuk says at the end of verse 6, his ways are eternal. This is the Lord who is in control. As I've thought about this theme, the Lord reigns, um, and the reason why I, I love Habakkuk is that there is some realism in Habakkuk, isn't there? Um, he was bewildered by what was happening in his world, and it would be a surprise to me if most of us also don't at times feel bewildered by what's happening. Um, we affirm the Lord's control, but that's not a, a trite religious phrase, the Lord reigns. It has to come from an understanding of mind and heart which truly understands God's greatness and God's overruling power. Um, I remember reading a little story in uh, a commentary uh, on Job by uh, David Atkinson, it, uh, and he wrote of a pastor who was making his way back home one night after comforting people during the wartime blitz in London. He'd had a very tough job as a pastor. And he met a fellow pastor who was also trying to do the same, comforting people in the midst of the war. And this fellow pastor, with, with some exasperation, some bewilderment, said, I wish I was on the throne of the universe for just 10 minutes. And his colleague, this pastor who was not quite so far gone, replied, if you were on the throne for 10 minutes, I would not wish to live in your universe for 10 seconds. It is the Lord who is on the throne. There are bewildering moments. There's no doubt about it. And that's why there are these expressions of uh, complaint and bewilderment and lament in the scriptures. And we also feel that. But what we are underlining in this prophecy, in which Habakkuk has now come to understand as he's resting on the solid rock, he is the sovereign Lord. He is in control of creation and in control of history and in control of nations. No wonder they will tremble at his coming. Knowing the coming of the Lord and the power of the Lord, 
is the huge encouragement and comfort to God's people in a turbulent world. Well, the third thing in this uh, song and the final thing we'll look at is the victory of the Lord. Because this final section introduces us to a number of images which will be familiar to us from the Old Testament story, especially the Red Sea deliverance. And again, it's sort of wrapped up with very dramatic poetry. God is using even the elements of his creation in his purposes of judgment. So first of all, verse 8, were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? Well, no, he wasn't angry with them. He demonstrated his power, though, in those elements, like a general leading his forces. And you can't miss the impact of the poetry in this song. Um, in verse 11, uh, there's the image of creation itself standing still, the sun and the moon. That's maybe a reference, do you remember, to that little story in Joshua 10, when the sun remained still in order to allow Joshua and his men to complete the battle. Then in verses 12 to 14, there are these various descriptions of the way in which the Lord will destroy the enemy. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to feet. Then in verse 15, little echo of the Red Sea deliverance, God's power over all of the chaos of the sea. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. And all of this was for one clear purpose. Judgment and salvation belong together, as we've said, in the past and also in the future. And in verse 8, there's a little reference there which is worth noticing. It says, uh, God is riding upon his chariot of victory. Uh, that's the NIV. In fact, the, the Greek uh, translation of this and the ESV, I noticed when I, when I checked it out, I think rightly translates it, your chariot which is salvation. That is what this song is all about. It is to do with the Lord's victory as he comes to save. It's spelt out even more clearly there in verse 13. Your chariot, sorry, I've just read that. Your chariot, which is victory. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. What God did in this Exodus deliverance, he is going to do again. He will save his people. He will bring them back from exile. That's partly what Habakkuk had in view, as did Jeremiah. God will bring his people back. But, of course, the field of view anticipates God's deliverance of his people also in our day and in the future. That is entirely the purpose of Jesus' coming. Do you remember how John records it? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And there's even an echo here in the Habakkuk vision in the song uh, of the Lord himself, the Messiah, Jesus. Did you notice it in verse 13? It's a reference to the anointed one. He will save his anointed one. And it's the word for Messiah. Um, it's used, of course, in the Old Testament, sometimes of the kings of Israel, and sometimes even of pagan kings like Cyrus. God used them to deliver his people. But, of course, it also points to the great coming Messiah, to Jesus himself, the Christ. And at the cross, the Lord Jesus was the one 
who bore God's wrath, his righteous anger. It was there, as we've said, that judgment, wrath, and mercy met. And God raised him to life, saving his anointed one, to use the phrase there from verse 13. And it was at that moment that the decisive battle against human sin, against the cosmic forces of wickedness, that was when they were destroyed. It reminds us, I often use this, quote this graphic language in Colossians, do you remember? And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is an amazing vision, isn't it? The coming of the Lord, the power of the Lord, the victory of the Lord. I want to finish, though, with just, um, again, a note of realism, a reminder that there is a tension, I, I mentioned this on Monday morning, a tension in our theology and in our experience between what we believe and what we understand is happening in our world. Uh, Satan has been overthrown through what Jesus has done. We've seen it there in Colossians 2. But he has not yet been finally eliminated. We're living in this overlap. We live in a world where the impact of the fall is very evident. Um, I give just two illustrations as we close. One I've often used because I think it's quite a simple and graphic idea. Let's suppose you're supporting a football team and uh, you, wa you watch the match, and you, like Oxford United, and Oxford United, which is where we come from, they have a fantastic victory. They beat Manchester United 4-1. Amazing victory. And uh, so the following weekend, you said, I'm going to watch that match again. I've got the video. And you put it in your, uh, uh, your machine, your DVD, or you download it, or whatever you do. And you watch the match again. And as it begins, you begin to see Manchester United move forward. And you think, oh, goodness, they're good. We're going to lose. And then you realize, no, no. Game's already been played. We know the result. We won. And that is the maneuver which we have to carry out as God's people. At times we look and there are advances. Satan, evil, seems to keep on rolling. We wonder if we're losing track. And then we must remember, no, the battle has already been won. And I think slightly better illustration, one you might have heard before, was actually from a Swiss theologian, a man called Oscar Kullman, who spoke about the Second World War. And I like this illustration very much. Um, as you know, the final victory of the Second World War was VE Day. And that was declared on June the 6th, 1944. Victory in Europe. But the moment when perhaps the critical turning point occurred was nearly a year earlier. It was D-Day, which was June the 6th, 1944. And you may remember that. That was Operation Overlord. And about a 1,000 ships crossed the channel into uh, Normandy, into the French uh, territory. Something like 200,000 soldiers landed. And it was already clear, historians now see, it was already clear that that invasion marked the end of the war. Now, the Germans realized, of course, that they couldn't stop it. The war was effectively over. But if you think about the soldiers involved in Operation Overlord, it didn't feel like the war was over. 
there were still all kinds of battles ahead. Now, we understand from historians that many of them realized now, of course, that the final victory was certain, but there were still some struggles before that final VE day. So I think Habakkuk 3 reminds us that God has invaded history. God has come. The coming of the Lord, the power of the Lord, the victory of the Lord. In Jesus Christ, that decisive battle has already taken place. The victory has already been won, as Paul declares it, as the New Testament constantly underlines. But of course, for the moment, the war is still on. And for Christians like us, we're still in the trenches. And therefore, it's very easy to lose perspective or to lose heart. And that's why it's vital that we do two things, which has been summed up in this fantastic song. We look back and we look forward. We look back to the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross and his powerful resurrection. We look forward to his coming. That those two poles are the things that we have to hold on to if we're going to trust God in turbulent times. So I come again back to communion, to the Lord's Supper. Do you remember how it's said in, uh, in the New Testament? We proclaim Christ's death until he comes. It's the same two things. Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' return. Because we know the outcome. And so in our struggles, when we're facing the hostility of evil or the challenge of sin in our lives or even the evil of death itself, we can be absolutely certain that Jesus has already won the victory. And we also hold on to the fact that in this turbulent world, there will be a day coming, which we've been rehearsing already in our uh, uh, references this morning, there is a day coming when Jesus will come and everything will finally be wrapped up. And Satan, the principalities and powers, death itself, they have no other expectation than final ruin. It will be the end of all of that. So the result of this remarkable vision for Habakkuk, and I hope also for us as we see the truth of the Lord's coming and the Lord's power and the Lord's victory, is he knew God could be trusted. As we'll see tomorrow as we finish, it still was a tough situation where Habakkuk was living. Everything was still in turmoil. But he knew he could trust God and his good purposes. So for us, looking back to the victory of the cross and looking forward to its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Christ, let's live our lives fully and joyfully, even in turbulent times, in the service of Jesus our Redeemer. I'm going to ask that we pray this prayer. Perhaps you'll say it aloud with me as we take Habakkuk's words to be our own. Shall we pray together? Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.